Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. As we continue our series on dementia, we visit again with Dr. Betty G. Lacey, a clinical psychiatrist based in Ukiah, California, whose focus is the prevention, care, and treatment of dementia, including Alzheimer's disease. In this program, Dr. Lacey shares her personal experiences with both of her parents who suffer from Alzheimer's. She suggests ways to deal with the changing personality that comes with this disease and how to deal with the stress it brings to family members. When Dr. Lacey visited Radio Curious on July 7, 2017, we began with her description of the changes Alzheimer's presents to family relationships and dynamics. I think Alzheimer's disease and all forms of dementia are really some of the saddest and cruelest diseases. It presents so much of a confounding picture for those of us that are caregiving, because our loved one is becoming a different person than what we uh, grew up with and what we know to be. And often it's further complicated by really big mood swings, sometimes personality changes, problems with alcohol, uh, overtaking medicine. Um, Memory impairment just touches so many areas. And so these become very difficult, particularly in the early stages of the disease. So in understanding it, an analogy that I've heard you mention is cross the bridge to their side of the world. Try and understand Alzheimer's or the dementia from the point of view of the person who is being overcome with that disease. Yeah, you know, when we look at Alzheimer's disease, remember, the brain is being kind of like a patchwork of disarray, so that the brain is not coming online. And we have to recognize that It's not important to be right or for the person to understand us. It's more important for us to understand them. So this is where empathy comes in and is so important. Say more about empathy and how it comes in. So the first thing I want to say about that is when we're talking about caring for our loved ones is this is the most important thing. You cannot do this on your own, okay? Or all the time. Or all the time, thank you. Yes, so the most important research also is being done for caregivers is that for those of us that are taking care of people with Alzheimer's disease or dementia, we actually have an increased risk of developing that ourselves. Can you expound on that, the increased risk for caregivers? Yes. So when you think about it, what happens is when we're caring for our loved one, it is not only that there is a tremendous amount of stress, often we're not eating well, we may not be sleeping well, we may become more isolated. All kinds of things are causing significant stress for us. And this actually increases our risk, along with, of course, depression and grief um, that we're going through because we're losing a member 
of our family, a relative, a loved one, really at such a slow rate over time. So this is not a disease that you're, you know, you have serious cancer and you die within a couple of years. I mean, my parents have both been sick uh, for over nine years. So Betty Lacey, how do you personally deal with this and your parents? Well, again, the first thing that we began is getting support. And I will say this disease really did mean that our family had to come on board and start functioning at a very different level. We were not a very close family, my brother, sister, and I. And when my parents' diseases started beginning around the same time, about 10 years ago, because often people manifest um, Alzheimer's disease first with what's called mild cognitive impairment, or the acronym MCI. What that means is that our loved one starts forgetting things, but their personality also is beginning to change slowly and gradually. And during this time, this is a time to actually propose the early intervention treatments, which is for making sure that they're getting um, early intervention in terms of a neurological exam, all their metabolic features, cardiovascular features. We want to make sure that they're getting the utmost uh, care and attention during these early stages and also get on medication, nutraceuticals, supplements, all of these kinds of things that can help them. So can you talk about sleep and rest for both sides? Exactly. For the sufferer and for the family caregivers. Yeah, so sleep actually with the person with Alzheimer's often becomes very disturbed as the disease progresses. And as a physician, I've been really concerned about the medication that has been given to people with dementia. They're elderly. They can't metabolize medicines as well as they did when they were younger. So it's important that we're using other kinds of supplements, again, and nutraceuticals, rather than sleeping pills or anti-anxiety agents, minor tranquilizers. These can also wreak havoc, and our elders can actually have what we call paradoxical reactions. So we want to avoid those. We also really neglect, as part of the SLEDS, the E part is, of course, exercise. And we really neglect that when people are exercising, they actually sleep better. We know that from research. So one of the really great um, opportunities in caring for our loved ones is to get them out and exercise on a more regular basis. For instance, in our mom's room right now at her care home, we actually have uh, an exercise bike uh, present and we get her on that 10 minutes every day. We have her on um, various kinds of melatonin and other sleep agents at night that are herbal and softer and uh, help her to keep more of a natural rhythm. Staying with learning, talk about the stages of Alzheimer's. Yeah, so in those first stages, that is a time where there's great personality change, behavioral disturbances. This is a time for particularly our father, I could tell tons of stories here, but we had to take away his car. And this was the time that our family really had to come together. We had to actually uh, tell him that we were going to remove his car. Of course, he was very upset. He ended up calling the police. He threatened to sue us. Eventually, we had to have him hospitalized. 
So these early stages are a time of great duress, and it's absolutely imperative that people get support during this time from somebody, and I'm going to emphasize this, who really knows this disease, either has personal or professional uh, connectivity with it so that they can really guide the person or family who's in need of support. Let's talk about shame in relationship to getting support for people who know there's something wrong with either themselves or their family member, but don't define it and don't know where to go. It's a crazy-making kind of disease, Barry. I mean, really, when you think about it, here's this person you've known all all your life, and all of a sudden, they're doing bizarre things. Um, My father was eating food that was rotten in his refrigerator and refusing to take it out, just doing kind of bizarre, uh, you know, behaviors. So getting the support from somebody else who actually, again, has walked in these uh, steps of Alzheimer's is imperative. Are there sites on the web that people may look at to get this support? Yes, there's actually geriatric social workers, you can go online and get numbers of people. And you know, when uh, people call me and talk with me about this, they're worried, well, how can I tell if this person is going to be, you know, a good person or a right fit for me? I tell people as I do with even picking out therapists is, you know, you're going to know very quickly with how this person responds to you. It's kind of like picking out fruit. You know the fruit that you want. You want it either hard, soft, or medium. You're going to know very quickly. Get off the phone, end the conversation, move on to the next one. And choosing a lawyer, same issue. Absolutely. And we haven't talked about that. But again, that learning curve is also about dealing with more end-of-life decisions as you progress in the stages of the disease. So we're talking about in the early stages with all the behavioral changes, eventually, and I want the listeners to know, things do change and things do get better and behavioral disturbances generally do quiet down as the disease progresses. It's also very sad, so there's more grief. This is another area of learning we need to consider But we go through the anger, the frustration, the um, bargaining. I know for me, a big part of bargaining, for instance, was uh, trying my mom on lots of different medicines and supplements and trying to find the cure for this horrible disease. Being a physician, I was reading tons of literature every day. I'd wake up and go to bed reading research articles, trying to find out, you know, what was the best um, treatment. And there were so many confounding things I needed a a lot of support during this time. Where did you find that support? Well, in a lot of different places. Um, Initially, we did hire a geriatric social worker to help us. Next off, our family was able to do some family counseling. Next, my mother actually agreed to go to the University of California at Irvine, where we would meet once a year. And this was very helpful. And I wish this service was more available to all families, where she would have neuropsychological testing a day's worth that could then really portend the year to year memory impairment and level of cognitive impairment that she was experiencing. So that would enable us to plan more for her. Also for us, when is she going to need assisted living? When is she no longer going to be able to live independently? 
And a big part of this is, and how much money do we have to meet these needs, right? And then moving further into the next stages, learning about, as you said, those legal challenges, what are we going to treat and what are we not as we end up in a stage in the latter stages? Right now, for instance, my mother's had three urinary tract infections, all different organisms. We now as a family have come together. Again, help from our uh, care home operator who's walked this path many a time with many people, asking me, what are we treating here, Betty? What are we doing here? And with that, I was able to get counsel from my family and friends. And we've decided now we're at a point where we will not be treating my mother's infection when it arises again. Is she aware of that? She is not in a place where she can fully understand that. But the other help we've called in is hospice. So hospice has come in and we realize now that this is something we could have had in much earlier because they actually have a visitation service where people come by to visit her in her care home twice a week. And they also have assured us that with various kinds of infections, like a urinary tract infection, it doesn't have to be painful. People can actually die quite comfortably. And that um, we're calling it now the old woman's friend. We used to call pneumonia the old man's friend. And we know that because this is what people used to die of years ago when there wasn't the antibiotics available and all the medical technological advances. We're visiting with Dr. Betty Lacey, a psychiatrist based in Ukiah, California, whose focus is the prevention and treatment of people with dementia. And we're focusing on Alzheimer's disease. This is Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Betty, diet. That's an issue for the person who is suffering from Alzheimer's and an issue for the people who are the caregivers, the family members. Absolutely. So just coming back from this brain conference in Los Angeles with all the top experts, nutrition was at the top of the list for working with dementia and also for caregivers. So again, the importance of nutrient-dense food, the importance of it having to be organic as much as possible, because remember, the brain here is particularly prone to more sensitivity. And if we're using many of the non-organic food, this has pesticides in it that can actually cause more negative reactions in the brain, oxidation, free radical formation. So we want to have a diet that's high in antioxidants and high in nutrient-rich food. And stress. Stress, again, for both parts of this equation. Absolutely. So that's the S part. The last one is decreasing stress. And we're going to do that by actually learning to meditate. I meditate with my mom several times a week. Again, relaxing is so important. And of course, that's really top of our list of sleds is actually improving sleep and resting, both for the client who has Alzheimer's or relative or loved one, 
and also us who are caregiving. Sleep is paramount right now in terms of research. So back to the stress, we want to meditate, we want to rest. One of the things that's been helpful for me to reduce stress has been to uh, connect with other people that have family members with Alzheimer's disease. So when we work in a group, one of the things we did is actually formed a group, all women caring for our parents, mostly all mothers with Alzheimer's disease. Remember, there is an increased risk if you are a woman with this disease. So we want to really make sure, and women are most of the caregivers often. So we want to make sure that we are really caring for ourselves here and reducing our stress, really attending to that. One of the approaches that I've heard you mention, Betty Lacey, is from the point of view of the family members, crossing the bridge over to their side of the world, the side of the world of the person who is suffering dementia. And you mentioned that in our Western culture, um, we are often more linear than some cultures where myths prevail about how life is and, or could be. Yes, this was something that was really hard for uh, our family. My father's a physician. My mother ran a clinic for autism spectrum youth and is a counselor, master's prepared. So we grew up in a highly intellectualized home. There was a lot of fun, but it definitely we veered into science a lot, had a lot of discussions about science and, and, and issues around the table at night. And so when our parents became ill, it was really challenging for us because we were wanting things to be in uh, in a way kind of correct, you know, how should we treat this? It's kind of like parenting. We wanted a, a book that would say, when they do this, we do this. And it, it just doesn't exist. So our geriatric social worker really helped us recognize that we could actually agree with our parents even though they were in this other world, and by other world, they were coming up with some kind of bizarre conclusions to things. Um, And we would just cross over to their world. So that means, again, validating their response and um, empathizing with it. Can you give us some examples? Sure. A friend of mine whose mother had dementia and grew up taking care of cows when she was young, when she moved in with my friend, one of the things that happened is she would get up early in the morning and go looking for the cows. Well, she lived in a neighborhood much like ours. There were no cows, but she still insisted upon getting up. My friend would go out and instead of belaboring and saying, there's no cows, there's no cows, mom, because that's not going to work. uh, Because again, the brain is not working as it used to. And so she would go out with the mom. They would look around. There were no cows she would say to her mom, Mom, there's no cows. And mom would say, I guess somebody must have put them up, dear. And then they would walk back into the house. So that's a perfect example of going over to her side. Now, if you don't want to get up early in the morning with your parent, maybe you look out the window and you say, I don't see the cows, mom. I think somebody put them up. So there's all kinds of ways, again, creative storytelling. And we actually have a lot of fun with this in our family, because my mother comes up with quite a lot of unusual questions for us, like, we do not have grandchildren. And she said, where are the grandchildren? 
And so we actually said, they're just down the street. And she said, Oh, well, will they be coming back soon? And we said, Of course, yes, they'll be coming for dinner. Well, this is an example of crossing over to their side. We're in a situation where the person who is suffering from dementia repeatedly asks about a family member or a circumstance. Yes, my mother often asks, how's your dad? How's your dad? And, you know, one minute apart or 30 seconds, sometimes my brother used to time the responses and then call me about how progressing her memory impairment was. Now what we do is, again, using this validation and distraction technique, Obviously, mom's concerned about dad. So we say things like, gosh, mom, I just talked to dad. He's doing fine. Oh, he is? So then she's off on something else. Well, what is he doing? So again, it's really about validating her concern and worry. The other piece to this is distracting because we don't want people to be resting in the tension of not knowing, of having a lot of anxiety from the neuroplasticity theory then we're going to be developing more synaptic activity for anxiety. So we really want to validate this, empathize with it, reduce it down. Resting in the tension sounds like a pretty important perspective on this issue. We need to realize part of the treatment that we can initiate as caregivers is to actually reduce that tension. Can you talk more about that? What that means to me is actually spending more time with being with our loved ones and um, doing it in such a way that we feel this deep connection with them. I've had actually some really wonderful moments with my mother just in the last couple of months because we're now in the latter stages of Alzheimer's where actually we can just sit and be with one another. And I think you mentioned this with your mother of just simply holding hands and being with one another. I want to talk for a moment about music and in particularly in relationship to my mother. It's one thing for me to understand and say my mother is almost 108 years old, but is what is truly remarkable is when I say that My mother is a person who's played the piano for almost 103 years. How does music fit in to memory loss? Well, it's really fascinating, the whole intersection of music and memory, because it appears that musical memory is the last to leave us. My mother, for instance, can see she also played the piano like your mother for many years. She can sit down and play the beginning of um, Claire de Lune by Debussy um, about the first three or four measures by heart still. So um, when she plays that, I'll tell you, my heart just melts. So and I think hers does, too. I think she loves that she can remember that. Um, so we know from the film Alive Inside, the 2014 um, documentary of the year, that when they took people who were in the back wards of the memory care units back east, and they hooked them up to an iPod with music that they love listening to when they were young, some of these people who literally were just sitting with their head down for 
months and even some years who had very little responsiveness woke up. It's quite, I get chills when I talk about it because it's quite remarkable. So that again, we're at the infancy of this disease. So isn't that interesting that here is this part of the brain that keeps functioning on some level? Why is that? That makes me wonder about the synaptic activity. It makes me wonder of harnessing those cells and can we put them in another area of the brain to jumpstart, um, you know, other synapses where the brain is not working so well. So this brings up, this is a, a big area of research right now is music and memory. There's, some, there's research going on right now at UCSF around this. So it's very, very fascinating. I want to mention that uh, there's a very curious interview here on Radio Curious with Daniel Levitin uh, about his book, This Is Your Brain on Music. You can find it on the Radio Curious website by uh, searching for music. Dr. Betty Lacey, I want to thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I'd like to ask some questions about you. The first one is, can you tell us about a eureka or an aha moment in your life? There's actually two of them. First one is recognizing through my research that there was an Alzheimer's susceptibility gene that had been hidden from public view and to then be tested with our family and find out that we did have susceptibility. That began really my shift into looking at Alzheimer's disease and neurodegenerative diseases and trying to understand them better, trying to prevent them and beginning to form alliances with other doctors and researchers and community members to treat the disease. And the other one? The other one was actually kind of what we've just been ending with today is the acceptance of the disease. So in my art, I've been doing a lot of bridges. So as we talked about crossing over to their side, I crossed over to acceptance of this disease and stopped fighting it in a way this year. And it allowed me to have a closer relationship with my mom. I'm not doing so much. I'm being more with her. And Betty Lacey, what would you like to do with the remainder of your One Precious Life? Well, for me, I want to meld science and art more. The science of understanding dementia and Alzheimer's, our risks, our ways to prevent it and treat it are wonderful. And I also use art to balance that out, having a greater balance in my life uh, between these two. And finally, Betty, is there a book that you could recommend to our listeners? Yes, I just finished He Wanted the Moon by Mimi Baird. It's an account of her father who had bipolar disorder in the 40s, a brilliant physician who actually also was in the process right before he was hospitalized of finding a cure for bipolarism. It's a very amazing story, again, of melding all kinds of research and personal story, as well as science. Dr. Betty Lacey, thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. Thank you so much, Barry. Dr. Betty G. Lacey is a clinical psychiatrist based in Ukiah, California, whose focus is the prevention 
care and treatment of dementia. Both of her parents suffer from Alzheimer's disease. She and her two siblings all carry the gene which makes them more susceptible to Alzheimer's disease. The book Betty Lacey recommends is He Wanted the Moon. The madness and medical genius of Dr. Perry Baird and his daughter's quest to know him by Mimi Baird and Eve Claxton. This program was recorded on July 7, 2017. There are over 630 archive editions of Radio Curious on our website, radiocurious.org. We appreciate your comments, ideas, and suggestions and like to hear from you. Email is curious at radiocurious.org. And the phone is 707-462-6541. Christina Onestead is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening. <laughs>